always thought alien life would come from the stars, but it came from deep beneath the Pacific. Welcome to Now Playing Pacific Rim Retrospective Series. To fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. Hosted by Stuart. He's a kaiju groupie. Jerry. Gonna be a long day. And Arnie. It's just a name. Yeah, a really cool name. Remember, it's about compatibility. It's a dialogue, not a fight. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse. Today we're discussing Rampage. Starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, what? Huh? What? What? Didn't we just watch Rampage? Uh, no, those were robots. That wasn't a giant ape. Oh, I saw buildings getting smashed. All right. So we're discussing Pacific Rim <laughs> Uprising? Sure. Okay. Did you somehow confuse John Boyega for Dwayne Johnson? <laughs> it doesn't happen that often, I can't imagine. <laughs> he gets that all the time. <laughs> Starring John Boyega, Scott Eastwood, Yang Time, Kylie Spaney, Rinko Kikuchi, Byrne Gorman, and Charlie Day. Directed by Stephen S. DeKnight. This is the now playing co-host who would actually prefer to be doing this show after a couple shots of Jaeger, Arnie. <laughs> and Stuart does Stuart. <laughs> Eating a fig. Did I say that right? Hey guys, this is Jerry, back for my annual robot appearance. <laughs> <laughs> this one might be biannual, Jerry. There's Bumblebee this Christmas. Right, which is, I think, a remake of Monster Truck. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Pacific Rib. Jerry, I knew you'd come back to the show. What I didn't know is that we'd ever discuss Pacific Rim again. It's been five long years since we did that weekend of release review of Guillermo del Toro's movie. And while I knew Guillermo kept talking and talking, like I'm working on a sequel, it's I've got ideas, I'm working with screenwriters, I honestly can say I thought it would just never happen. The movie just didn't do that well. Depends on what continent you live on. I think, honestly, this is one of those rare cases where it pretty much bombed here in North America, but was a phenomenon in Asia, China specifically. And I think you see that reflected in this movie. Chinese characters, the whole emphasis is shifted in that direction. Yeah, I was shocked when I looked it up to find out Pacific Rim made over 400 million global and maybe a tenth of it was domestic. <laughs> oh, it was a full 25%, Arnie. Come on now. <laughs> it didn't make $100 million in the U.S. I think it did. It absolutely did, yeah. Just 101. Barely made it. Oh. But yeah, I mean, it was mostly China and then, you know, U.K., South Korea, Russia. But it made a little bit more in China than, than the U.S. Yeah, and that's why we're, we're back. I don't think that... We thought it was coming, and Guillermo del Toro was just having a terrible time getting anything greenlit up until a few weeks ago when he won the Oscar. <laughs> uh, his career was kind of <laughs> toast, frankly, and this was a, a reason why. Was these movies cost a whole lot, and they don't particularly make a lot of money here in North America. There were some other things going on with Pacific Rim specifically and the license that caused a delay. It seemed like they were ready to go, but Warner Brothers and Legendary Pictures had some kind of a falling out. And you'll notice this one's universal with Legendary Pictures. Warner Brothers is no longer in the mix. It took a little while for the IP rights to 
all fall into place. And then when the money was there, Guillermo wasn't. He was off filming The Shape of Water, and I don't think anybody would say he made the wrong choice with that. And especially since Pacific Rim, I went back, I rewatched the original, I've seen it once in between our review and now, and then I wanted to refresh, re-listen to that review, and watching it again, you can tell it's not a passion project for Guillermo. Guillermo's films have a flavor, and that one's just too vanilla. It was somebody else's script. He may have made the Transformers versus Godzilla concept something he enjoyed from his childhood, but it wasn't where his heart lie. You know, I have to say I was uh, true to my own not recommend on the last one because when I took some time this week and thought to myself, okay, maybe I should watch the last movie, catch up on a little bit. I was like, nah, I'm just not feeling it. I, I couldn't <laughs> make myself even see if it was available on a Netflix or Amazon Prime. And instead, I just listened to our review and listening to the review, I'm like, okay, I'm glad I didn't didn't revisit that one. Well, I do think there are moments to recommend, but I'm standing by my not recommend as well. It's, <laughs> it was a tough one because it is such a beautiful looking battle. And if you're a Godzilla fan, I was growing up. You love to see those moments, but that movie was gargantuan. It just dragged <laughs> on and on. And I had the same problem at the end of this one. I was like reading a book by the end of it. I'm like, I cannot pay attention to the climax of that film. I just don't care. But Hong Kong, man, that was one of the great fight scenes maybe of this millennium. What's odd, though, is I liked the first movie. I didn't love, love, love it if you listen to that review in the archives. The movie definitely has problems. My memory of it was actually that I was more fond of it than I was. Because when I rewatched it, I'm like, did I love this movie? Because it's, it's got its problems. And then I realized, I'm like, okay, no, I didn't love it. But I like it. I still like it. But we did that movie mainly because I was really, really excited for it in 2013. Fast forward to 2018, and I cannot explain why. But I had zero desire to go see Pacific Rim Uprising. There was nothing in the marketing. There was nothing in the ads that told me that I needed to go back to this. And in fact, so few of the actors returned from the last one, too. I mean, yes, several died, including Idris Elba being perhaps the most notable of them. I don't know if anyone's really pining for Charlie Hoonan anymore. There's a reason he didn't come back. He was making Robin Hood. They approached him. They wanted him, but I was not excited either, Arnie. I I ended up biting a bullet and reading a novel called Pacific Rim Ascension, <laughs> which is, yes, because what you really want from Pacific Rim is to not see the fights, to have the jargon <laughs> without the visuals. It's incredible, let me tell you. But they do a lot to explain what happened in the 12-year war and in the 10 years of peace that build up to this 2035 timeline that we find ourselves in in the sequel. As we go through the movie, I'll tell you what happened to certain characters that may not be explained on here, but they wrote him off in that book. Okay, I actually thought about you when I was watching this movie. At the very beginning, it's like, there's been 10 years of peace. And I'm like, then what the hell's in that book Stuart read? That had to be dry <laughs> as crap. <laughs> well, it's mostly about cadets that get underserved in this film. There are characters that we see some of, but I don't feel like we get a whole lot of on screen. And they get whole entire backstories in this novel. And they do come up with a murder mystery plot. Uh, they don't have a kaiju plot. I did go see this opening night. IMAX 
3D. And it was shocking to me that it was IMAX 3D. I could have seen 2D a little bit later. If you guys follow the theater news, IMAX made this big statement last year that they were going to move away from 3D movie releases and that American audiences had a strong preference for 2D. And ever since that press release, everything I've seen in IMAX has been 2D. When I saw Thor, I didn't have an IMAX 3D option. I think the last IMAX 3D movie I saw was Wonder Woman. But here was Pacific Rim 2 in IMAX 3D. And I went, me and about maybe 30 of my closest friends were in that theater that would seat 400. Wow, that many. Yeah, I'm shocked. Mine was considerably less for the 2D showing. I'm wondering if maybe why there was an IMAX 3D print was because they started production on this movie a long time ago. This movie was supposed to come out one whole year ago, back when that was the standard. If you had an IMAX movie, it was going to be in 3D. So maybe... It was just already baked in the cake that (laughs) it was coming out in 3D and there was nothing they could do about it. But yeah, this one had been, the release dates kept changing. I kept on the now playing calendar. I'm like, all right, last spring, maybe the summer, no, the fall. Okay, is it going to be January release? Not quite. We're now in the spring break. Maybe they can make some money of March area of the calendar. But no, I had no expectation going into this movie. I also... Could just say, I don't know this director. Guillermo del Toro is someone with a lot of style and imagination. Not all his movies work for me, but I always want to see them. Uh, This is a man, the Stephen DeKnight, that has made TV shows I've not watched. I read some interviews with Stephen DeKnight, and he is somebody I have watched for most of his career. He got his start working under Joss Whedon on Buffy and Angel. And I watched every episode of those shows, loved Buffy, thought Angel was pretty cool. And then he went on to do some Smallville stuff. Now, I did not see anything Spartacus. I've never watched an episode of Spartacus, but he was known for that. Men without shirts. That's what I would call it. I saw one episode. (laughs) 300 the series then. Mm. But where I probably know this guy best from is he's the interstate for Drew Goddard, who we've reviewed him before, World War Z, Cabin in the Woods. He's the writer of the upcoming Deadpool 2. He was supposed to do the Daredevil Netflix series, but then he got a better offer from Sony. Come do our Sinister Six movie. So he (laughs) quit Daredevil to go to Sony to make that Sinister Six film. That's not ever being made. Even though now Sony is putting out new Spider-Man spinoffs, that's not even one of them. No. So he chose poorly, as the knight might say in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He squeaked out one episode of Daredevil, apparently. Yeah, he did work on the show, and he worked on the pilot for it. But Stephen S. DeKnight took over as showrunner for Daredevil when he left. And Daredevil, especially that first season, loved that show. Absolutely just powerful television. I think that I haven't seen Vincent D'Onofrio give this powerful a performance since Full Metal Jacket. But it's interesting how he got Pacific Rim. DeKnight had, he wanted a directorial debut film. He'd written a little horror movie. About an $8 million budget, got greenlit, and being so small, it literally fell through the cracks at the studio. It just kept getting delayed. Nobody would take his calls. (laughs) They're like, we're not going to spend our time on this $8 million thing. And so somebody at Universal said, 
well, what would you think about doing Pacific Rim 2 instead? And tonight was like, well, that's a little bigger. Yeah. I mean, how what is the budget on this? I've got to say it's in IMAX 3D. It's still, uh, despite not having the, I don't know if they were big stars, but despite not having the recognizable names, it's mostly an unknown team cast this time. I do feel like there was money here. And for a newbie to command this, they're in charge of a big production. Yeah, just looking at Box Office Mojo, they're claiming $150 million. Oh, a measly $150 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah, the last one was like $190, so that, this was cheap. <laughs> yeah. This is a budget Pacific Rim. Yeah, they probably saved that money specifically on cast. I think that the production <laughs> budget is the same. They just didn't have to pay the cast or the director as much for doing the work. But whoa, 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 whoa. This is a science fiction movie, and we got that new Star Wars guy. And he can use his real accent. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Hey, and we'd seen him do sci-fi before, Attack the Block. So getting John Boyega back in sci-fi. I'll even give a shout out to his acting chops. I saw him in Detroit. I thought he really showed some range. So that wasn't a negative thing to see him in the cast. I can't say it was a big draw either. I mean, like, oh, they just got him because they, they couldn't get Idris. <laughs> Idris is dead. And so we're going for teens. And, I, you know, that's a mark, right? That's a mark against it that, like, we're just going to remake the first movie, but with a teen cast. That kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't get that from the advertising either. When I saw the advertising, I saw John Boyega front and center, and I knew he was going to play the son of Idris Elba's character, Pentecost, and I wondered who else would come back. I went in pretty spoiler-free, but I'm like, if you're getting the son of Pentecost, then, well, we've got to get Mako back, who was the stepdaughter of Pentecost, right? Because if the, if the entire Pentecost clan has disappeared and John Boyega sprang up, that's like Daniel Baldwin showing up when you invited Alec. I mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, she shows up for a day, maybe two. <laughs> but I didn't know from the ads that there was going to be quite so much of a younger presence in this film i guess we could call this jaeger babies yeah i definitely smelled that on this movie i don't know what it is between this and monster trucks this is the second movie we've talked about where i walked out thinking wow this is the highest budget disney channel original movie i've ever seen <laughs> it does have that quality and it doesn't help that one of the cadets surish i think that's how it's pronounced he's played by uh, karan brar who's been in a couple disney channel shows jesse some other camp show, whatever that. So he's been on Disney Channel for like the last six or seven years. And I see him, I'm like, oh man, come on, this is truly like the junior division of casting for this movie. Yeah, and the first one was PG-13, right? They haven't toned down the violence or anything, but there's just something that happens to a project when it gets inherited to younger hands. That you know, I just think of the Fly Two. It's just like, hmm, this is going to be lesser. I have to say that doesn't have to always be the case. It was amazing last year, and it had an all-kid cast. So there are properties with kids that can play to adults. Again, I went in completely open-minded, just remembering, hey, I like the first one. Monsters versus Robots, come on. It does not get too much more base and simple to enjoy than seeing Godzilla punch Bumblebee. All right, then. Then you give this very simple plot. We'll get into it. Well, no, I said it's a simple premise. <laughs> <laughs> the plot. Huh? Yeah, there's some stuff missing here. 
The year is 2025, and Earth is at peace. There hasn't been a kaiju attack in 10 years when the portal to their world was closed as seen in the first movie. Which, when I rewatched the first movie, I'm like, so they didn't really close it, right? That's how the sequel will go. I mean, how do you have a sequel if there's no portal? I was surprised. No, the portal stayed closed. But just in case the giant monsters ever do return... The Pan-Pacific Defense Corps, or PPDC, has been building new and better Jaegers to fight them. And black market Jaeger parts, taken off the wreckage of downed mechs, go for a fortune in the secondary market, where people try to build their own Jaegers for fun and profit. And one of the scavengers who's trying to sell Jaeger parts is Jake Pentecost, played by John Boyega. The son of Idris Elba's character Stacker Pentecost, who died in the first movie, Jake is more of a party guy who doesn't want to follow the rules. He wants to get drunk and pay for his hot sauce with tech. But a chance encounter with a little girl changed the direction of his life. Kylie Spaney plays Amara Narmani. I'm never going to say that last name again, so let's just say <laughs> Narmani. <laughs> Not Armani. <laughs> <laughs> a teenage girl orphaned 10 years earlier during a kaiju attack. She's lived on her own and built her own mini Jaeger she calls Scrapper. Amara steals a part that Jake was also trying to steal, and both get arrested. However, Jake's stepsister, Mako Mori, hero of the kaiju war, is now the PPDC general secretary, and instead of jail, Jake is made instructor at the Jaeger Academy at the Hong Kong Shatterdome. And due to her skill building and piloting Jaegers, Amara is brought along as his student. There's strife at the Academy, though. Jake is forced to work with Nate Lambert, played by Scott Eastwood. Nate disapproves of Jake's life, and they spar over that, as well as over comely tech Jules Reyes, played by Adria Arjona. Meanwhile, Amara is picked on by an older trainee named Victoria. But why are they even training when the Jaeger program's about to be discontinued? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it, but since you had to bring it up, what the f***? <laughs> and they keep building them because the portal's closed. <laughs> <laughs> They're just fun. They're good pets. The Shao Corporation has a new drone program that was pioneered. I thought it was pioneered by Whiplash. Drone better. But no, it's pioneered by Dr. Newt Geisler, played by Charlie Day, one of the few actors to return. The drones will remove danger to pilots by being operated remotely. Before the Jaegers can go away, though, a rogue Jaeger called Obsidian Fury shows up in Australia, making me wonder who's naming the Jaegers. Mm. <laughs> it's Mad Libs, I tell you. <laughs> Mad Libs in a case of Jaegermeister. <laughs> Fury causes much wreckage and kills Jake's sister Mako before retreating into the ocean. This causes the PPDC to immediately approve the drone program to be launched in 48 hours. Meanwhile, the PPDC tracks Obsidian Fury to Siberia. They go to investigate and cut the Jaeger down, but when they open the cockpit, they see there's no human pilot, but... Instead, a kaiju brain. Actually, a cloned brain grown from the cells of a dead kaiju. But who would do such a thing? Well, it's obviously Newt. When he mind-melded with the kaiju brain in part one, it turns out it left him with a split personality. Newt is in there somewhere, but he has been taken over by a kaiju precursor, which I think is like the ruling class of the kaiju... 
Yeah, they're the real enemy that we've never seen before, that they made monsters to invade so that then they could move in. I don't know why they call them a precursor, because a precursor usually means they're coming before. I would think that the big ones we've been attacking are the precursors. Yeah. These are the postcursors. Yeah, I don't know why you'd live in a shatter dome, too, if you don't want it to break. I mean, <laughs> these names, we can agree. All the names in this, very, very bad. Misleading. <laughs> Well, this precursor has been planning to reopen the portals and flood the world with kaiju. And the key to this are the drones. When they launched, it's discovered each one has a kaiju brain, and they turn into biomechanical monsters. And these monsters fire lasers into the ocean, opening the portal, and three huge kaiju come through. Then Dr. Herman Gottlieb, played by Bern Gorman, discovers what the kaiju had been attempting all along. Since the beginning of the kaiju attacks... <laughs> they were trying to find Tokyo. All they wanted to do was go to Mount Fuji. <laughs> I want to go to Mount Fuji. But not for the reasons they do. They don't want to take pictures. Gottlieb realized kaiju blood combined with rare earth elements create a super rocket fuel, and Mount Fuji is full of these rare earth elements. So if a kaiju jumps into the volcano, it will create a ring of fire so bad it will cover the entire earth in ash, killing all life and terraforming the planet so it's more habitable for the kaiju precursors. Whew. Yeah. To stop the kaiju and save the planet, Jake and Nate put aside their differences and pilot a Jaeger called Gypsy Avenger. Saber Athena, piloted by a couple of the trainees, Guardian Bravo, piloted by more trainees, and Titan Redeemer, piloted by two trainees and Amara, go and fight the kaiju. They kill two of the kaiju, but three of the Jaegers are downed. Nate is injured and has to eject from Gypsy. So Amara joins Jake in the cockpit of the Avenger, and they get aided by Scrapper, piloted by Luan Shao. The CEO of the Shao Corporation has jumped into a Jaeger and run into the middle of battle, trying to minimize the damage caused by her drones. No, 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 no. She's remotely doing that one. Yeah, she droned that. Oh, she droned that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought she was actually in Scrapper. I still think that she had many people that were trained to do that. She didn't actually have to strap on the headset. <laughs> they succeed in killing the kaiju at the last second by crashing the Gypsy Avenger into it, with Jake and Amara ejecting at the last second. And Nate captures Newt, who swears the kaiju will attack the world over and over. But Jake says next time it will be the humans on the offense going to attack the precursors as credits roll. Wow, you filled in some gaps for me, Arnie. I, I do appreciate that, and um, quite a task in summarizing all that. It was not fun, and I'll <laughs> put it out there right now. I have no idea of half the cast members' names, and I had to look up about half the names I saw. I'm like, who was the pretty tech? I never caught her name. As soon as Amara, whose name I did not get either, I they like said her name a couple of times, but in my notes I just have girl, girl, girl. <laughs> and when she goes into the trainee room... All of a sudden, I'm like, I give up. There's too many damn characters. Their names are all weird, too. There's no Cadet Bob. Yeah, which makes Jake and Nate really stand out, doesn't it? It's like, <laughs> those are the two most generic names. So apologies to all Jake and Nate listeners, but if you're naming a character, I don't get much out of a Jake or a Nate unless they're frat leaders. <laughs> so I got Jake and Nate surrounded by Amara, Mako, Newton, Herman, Lewen... Jules, Shuresh, Vic. Yeah, no doubt about it. That was the movie I thought I was going to watch. I thought it was going to be Top Gun, the new recruits, 
with Kaiju coming in at some point subbing for the Russians. But it ends up having some surprise here. This movie isn't exactly what I thought it would be. And I do wonder, with its extremely long post-production and canceled release dates, if there aren't different cuts of this movie. There are just things in this film I cannot explain. There are characters that go away. There are toys for mechs that aren't in this film. I do think that if it feels confusing, there are probably things that were done in the edit that exacerbate the confusion. Absolutely. We haven't really talked about it much. I think the only film it really impacted that we reviewed was Iron Man 3, had extra scenes filmed for the Chinese audience that featured some of their actors. But it's becoming more and more common in various films. And in the theater, I had two thoughts referring to what you said, Stuart. The first one is, this was not made for us. You could have had Eddie Vedder standing at the doorway to the theater screaming, this is not for you! And I couldn't have gotten that message any more clearly. And then the second thing I thought was, wait. Where the bleep are the kaiju? <laughs> halfway through this movie, I'm like, we're halfway into the movie and there's no monsters. Yeah, that one is a real stunner. But let's just start at the beginning here. They wisely decide that many audience members have forgotten the first movie. <laughs> and we just need a data dump of like, here's everything in the terminology in a really expedient montage. And it's done in voiceover by Jake, who is the son of Stacker Pentecost. That was Idris Elba. And he's going to tell us everything that's happened in the previous movie, as well as everything that's happened to him in the 10 years afterwards, and why he's not as cool as Edger Selva. <laughs> he never tells us that. <laughs> well, he gave up, or he was fired. Sure he does. <laughs> Actually, and you know what? I like this premise. I like the fact that, hey, in a way that we're going to try not to make the same movie because it didn't do very well, let's advance it 10 years, find a new scenario, and this is Pentecost's son, Jake, who's not all that he can be, and he's doing, actually, I think some pretty interesting things up front. So he knows enough about the Eggers to go find parts that are most valuable, do some black market. I chuckled a little bit because it seems like he was trading these things in for sugary snacks. Yeah. <laughs> Oreos and hot sauce. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine his house? He's like maxing out in a big pool, but I'm like, yeah, but it's just sriracha inside? Like, that's gross. <laughs> sriracha and Oreos. But it's whatever they could get the product placement for, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're trying to pay these bills any way they can. I just wonder who approached the sriracha company. <laughs> How low are you there? It's, again, Asia. I mean, it's a big hit over there. Hey, do Oreos even exist in 2025? I mean, this could be like uh, Zombie Land and Twinkies. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so he is everything that his father is not, who was a disciplined military guy. This guy is a rogue orphan who cavorts with criminals. And in his opening scene here, Santa Monica Scrapyard, he's actually going to try and steal something that... I don't know what it does, but it's something really cool that the robots need. It's a capacitor. So it's something that powers a Jaeger. But he's being to the punch, and he's being held at gunpoint because he can't deliver. And here I think I know what this movie is going to be in some way. I think these three gangsters who are there pulling guns on 
Jake are going to play something in the rest of the movie, right? You wouldn't have a gangster who Jake had robbed in the past, who Jake is trying to make right. I mean, it's a Han Solo job of the hut thing here, right? Jake owes this guy one because he ripped him off. He's going to try to make it right here by giving the capacitor and they're all going to get rich. And the capacitor is on the move by a shadowy figure. We don't really get to see who's stealing it, but you can tell from the shadows it's probably a woman. Jake activates a trap door, which is a pretty cool trick. Puts the three goons down in this room. Are they just left to starve to death? We never see them again. <laughs> in the R-rated cut, we cut back to see, yeah, they're rotting flesh. <laughs> you know, here's the thing I really wonder. is like, this doesn't feel like the intro to the character. Like, I forget that he's a smuggler. The fact that he steals things doesn't really come back in the rest of the movie. I wonder if they rewrote this for John Boyega to give it a Star Wars kind of vibe because most people will associate with him being in that universe. They thought, well, maybe to introduce him in this universe, we need to make him cut in the cloth of a Han Solo. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say, especially since I know that Boyega was trying to distance himself from the role of Finn in interviews with Denight, he said how Boyega was growing the facial hair and saying, this is how I envision my character. But Denight is like, I think he just didn't want to look like Finn in a sci-fi movie. And he was very excited to use his actual British accent, which works because Idris is also British. But he was really trying to get away from the character he's best known as. Good luck, Mark Hamill. Yeah, and no surprise, if you're making it a tease about who has this capacitor, of course it's going to be a 15-year-old girl. Like, already I feel like, okay, I'm on to this movie, and that she is smart enough to have built all on her own a tiny little Jaeger. It doesn't compare to the 250 and 300-footers that we'll see for the rest of the film, but she has a cute little wheelie one that, yeah, scrapper. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking throughout this movie of, and I won't play my hand here for the recommendations, but I was thinking, yeah, that's just like Transformers, but admittedly, this one works a little bit better. Okay, this doesn't make any more sense, but at least it's a little bit more fun. Maybe the, you know, I think John Boyega is playing John Boyega, so I don't see that he, you know, I didn't see Detroit, so I'm gathering that what he brings to Finn, what he brings to Jake is just sort of some of his natural charm, wit whatever you want to call it, and I think he does fine. If a Transformer movie had cast him in place of maybe some other people they've used, maybe they'd been doing a little bit better. You know, I've been wondering for quite some time, particularly after the last night, what a Transformer movie would look like without Bay. I think this is our best window into what that could be. Yeah, in these scenes, I think I'm seeing Bumblebee. And I actually think tonight, at one moment, tries to pull a Michael Bay. He does the 360-degree slow-mo camera sweep, and I'm like, wait a second, all I need is somebody oiled up in a low-cut top in the background, <laughs> because I couldn't believe Michael Bay's been doing that shot since Bad Boys. Yeah, and the sound designers, I had to go look, because when they get rolling and all, I'm like, that is a Transformers noise! And it is. <laughs> These guys have done all of the Foley and sound design work on those films so it, when you're seeing these robots you're hearing transformers it's making that connection even more strongly here and that is again one of the things that is surprising about this movie there are far less robot versus monster battles and far more robot versus robot battles starting here when the 15 year old girl 
And John Boyega tried to get away in her homemade scrapper and are caught by a law enforcement Jaeger. This one is called November Ajax. (laughs) It's it's really good at cleaning Thanksgiving messes. (laughs) I got to give Scrapper this. I liked how he turned into a rock and just rolled through buildings and things. Admittedly, I'm hoping that there is nobody working in the offices that they just decide to barrel through. I'm thinking they're causing a lot of property destruction for our heroes. Oh, Arnie, I mean, that opening scene, they're in a completely abandoned area, though. That's pretty clear. This this movie throughout really explains to us that and shows us that, yeah, nobody's here. In fact, this whole scene reminds me of that opening scene from last night in Chicago when Mark Wahlberg goes in there and finds the girl, and she's got the little scooter. I can't remember his name, but you probably remember what I'm talking about. And admittedly, I watched this thinking, all right, this was a better version of that. This is what that scene should have been. I'd been a little bit more engaged. But, yeah, we, we got the sense that that entire area they were in was just run down, already destroyed from the Kaiju War, and just abandoned. That's my old neighborhood, too. I'm getting homesick. I haven't been to L.A. in a year now. And yeah, that's Santa Monica. I mean, that's the pier that they end up rolling and, and get caught. All of these are famous landmarks of the area. Always bustling with hundreds, thousands of tourists, really, on the weekend. So to see it completely depleted, it makes sense. Again, if these monsters come from the Pacific Ocean, everything along that coast that used to be heavily populated is now going to be a ghost town. But I enjoyed the chase and I enjoyed not knowing where this movie was going to go, quite honestly. And I wondered if it might be about these two on the sidelines getting involved and becoming inadvertent heroes of the war, you know, little scrapper becoming the Luke Skywalker or something. But no, it's actually rather amusing when Scrapper just gets grazed by the foot and then November Ajax just knocks by tapping their finger on it. Just I thought Scrapper was big. I'm like, she built her own Jaeger. But then when you see the real Jaeger, you're like, Scrapper doesn't even come up to its calf. Right. It kind of represents her. She's smaller than all the other characters. And it would make sense that her mech is also smaller than all the other ones. It's her story. John Boyega may have more screen time, but ultimately I feel like if there's a character arc in this, it's the story of her proving herself as a pilot. She's already at the beginning proved herself as a mechanic. But just because you can build a mech doesn't mean that you can pilot one. And so for reasons not entirely clear, except that this is a Hollywood movie that needs to move the plot along, she is now going to be enrolled in Pilot Academy in Hong Kong. Well, it was important that she had to build one that she could pilot by herself. Right. So it couldn't be one of those massive ones. So that skill alone, even if it was a smaller one, I I guess lends itself into that, which is fine. I don't mind the point A to point B of what's going on there just to, to get it going. But the fact that they're going into the school now and becoming cadets starts to tell us that, hey, something's going to happen. We joked about earlier, if they know the portal is closed... It's not like a real door where it can come off its hinges. The portal is closed, (laughs) so they're still training, they're still building, they're still working on the replacement, which turns out to be smart because it does start to break open. I couldn't figure it out, Jerry. I've tried to give this movie something like they're afraid the kaiju will come back, or maybe it's like Bush-era politics. The new global government is using fear to keep the entire world in line and using these giant robots to enforce a police state. We never see civilians. Yeah, but I'm sure they're helpful. I mean, no cat will ever get stuck in a tree again. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we see, I mean, we see civilians running around Tokyo at the end. I mean, they're presumably out there. Yeah, but we never follow the story of a civilian. We don't know how it's like to live in this world as a person. We have only followed war pilots. And that's because you haven't read Pacific Rim Ascension. <laughs> <laughs> if you're really eager, I got 316 pages for you to just chew on that I really struggled to finish with. So if you want to know what's in it, okay, as we get to the Pilot Academy and we see that young Amara is not accepted by this mean, tall Russian woman named Victoria. Victoria is the major character in Ascension. She and her drift partner, Jin Hai, I think I'm pronouncing that right. He is from Hong Kong. He came from famous parents that pilot a Jaeger. She always grew up believing her parents were not there because they were off piloting a Jaeger and found out it was a lie. And she'd spent all this time wanting to be a Jaeger pilot and it not being in her family destiny. That's kind of why she has a chip on her shoulder and yeah again it's a murder plot in which we see that they're stand accused and they end up you know figuring out the plot it's also mentioned here early on that we see scott eastwood's character nate say that his drift partner burke is going away burke was his compatriot in that novel and because he it was so intense let me tell you that book was so crazy <laughs> he couldn't handle it anymore they needed to get john boyega back because they are drift compatible and they have been uh, drifting in the past before john boyega was either thrown out or ran away it's not really he tells a story about why he left but it's never really clear to me whether he doesn't want to be there or they don't want him to be there and this whole drift compatible thing, having rewatched Pac Rim 1 and how everything was about drift compatibility and how in that movie they had to do kung fu stick fights to find out who's compatible. In this one, if that one is like trying to find a partner for marriage, this one's basically an orgy. Anybody could get with anybody in a Jaeger this movie. There's no compatibility issues. It's just the only time we see it not work isn't a compatibility issue. It's about training. It's about being able to focus. But like they're Jaeger hopping like it's nothing. In the last one, it was like a marriage. And I like that better. This was more like, let's see who's capable of drifting and if two people can drift, they can drift together. And, and quite frankly, I thought that's one of the things that made the other movie drag and drag. And, you know, we talked that. And I'm glad they simplified that. It's like if you can calm yourself to drift and someone else can calm themselves to drift, go drift. All right. Here's all I'll say. What I found most interesting about Pacific Rim 1 were the monsters and drifting. And I said in the first movie, I felt they didn't explore drifting enough. The complete sharing of your mentality with another person. Everything you know, your secrets, your history, the dirtiest secret you keep is being shared with somebody. I thought that was rife for exploration and drama. And the monsters, I thought, were a lot of fun. This movie goes the opposite direction, making drifting seem like absolutely nothing. It's like standing in line for a cheeseburger, and the monsters aren't here. So everything I wanted in a sequel, they went the exact opposite. I would say it's a lot of those choices are unexpected. I could have predicted some of this, and then some of this is really surprising. I mean, I would have thought it would have been very obvious to everyone that they needed to get the monsters in here about this point. Okay, she's at the Academy. 
scene. Maybe we have a few training scenes, but she's basically going to earn their respect. And then lo and behold, here comes a monster. But again, that will not happen. She's in training simulations and the book is filled with those as well. But who can get excited about training simulations? That just feels (laughs) like they gave us a very different movie by not giving us monsters. And all of these training scenes, especially the fact that John Boyega doesn't want to be there except for the super Sundays he can build after hours, that guy has a sweet tooth. I don't know where that came up as his defining characteristic will be his love of sugar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But he doesn't really want to be a trainer. He's dealing with Nate. Scott Eastwood, one of our listeners on Twitter said that he just projects being a dick and i get that off of him in this just i don't know a lot about nate but he just comes off as a real prick yeah he's never made my day i mean that's the (laughs) thing about you know he's trying to do his dad but he doesn't have that voice clint had that voice that made you know he meant business like he will screw you up this guy's too pretty he sounds his voice is too high and it just he's trying to be that same tough guy and he just looks like an annoying frat brother you're right that is exactly (laughs) how he comes off and so here he is supposed to be the drill sergeant as it were of this academy getting these kids in line he is no idris elba he is no clint eastwood it means that we don't have the proper characterization at the top of this school because he is the guy the funny thing is we've reviewed him in several movies i couldn't remember ever seeing this guy act i mean he is a very bland forgettable presence he he needs to take up smoking or something to become more unique and get that voice every time i see him in a movie i don't recognize who he is i always go imdb and see who i recognize see him like you know i recognize that person from somewhere where is i'm like oh yeah that's god eastwood i never call him out or pick him out while I'm watching the movie. It's always later. Yeah, he's the least interesting one on screen. Remember Suicide Squad? He was the one in the background that never did anything cool. (laughs) Who was he in Suicide Squad? (laughs) He was like the white dude. It was like the cool Suicide Squad and then like the white dude walking around. (laughs) And then in Fast and the Furious, I think he's the white dude behind Kurt Russell. (laughs) He's the one that gets thrown around by The Rock. So what's this movie about if it's not going to get us battling these monsters quick? It's going to take on a more topical, maybe grounded debate that we're having right now about our own military combat. Should we continue to put people in danger? I don't know how much danger there is if there's no monsters. (laughs) Or should we move to drones? And so that conflict is represented between Mako Mori returning. We have Renko Kikuchi back without her drift partner this time. I'll explain that in a second. She feels like drones can be hacked. But she's willing to listen to the PR talk by what appears to be our enemy, Luan Shao, who's been working with Newton, that's Charlie Day, to try and prove that drones are the future. And I really fell for it. I thought she was going to be evil. I mean, not to stereotype, but Hollywood likes to stereotype. It's a shorthand for storytelling. So... There are a lot of Asian characters here, 
but to see an Asian CEO of a tech company who's very short and forcing her employees to speak Mandarin, and she does not like repeating herself, she does not like speaking English, to think of her as Miss Yutani from Alien vs. Predator was exactly where I went. I thought for sure everything was done by her to advance her drone program. But then when it wasn't, I'm like, oh yeah, wait, we're selling this to China and China might actually not let the movie in if she was the bad guy. That's actually the first thing that went in my head that for them to take it, you wouldn't have been able, I don't think, to depict her that way. But I'm with you, Arnie. I mean, you thought that the rogue Jaeger came up because she arranged it because the real Jaegers weren't capable of stopping them. And you think that was just, and then immediately like, oh, they're pushing ahead. They won in 48 hours. But when Charlie Day's character, when Newton goes and still apparently has his alone time with his kaiju brain, you're like, oh, <laughs> this is going weird. Yeah, I really did think, like you guys, it was shout. I mean, they even take her so far as to saying, okay, we're in Australia and the woman, the one woman that is against her program that's going to end it, everyone else is like, okay, we're cool with drones. But Mako Mori's like, oh, no, I'm going to tell everyone once I get to Australia. And then her chopper gets destroyed and she never gets to tell anyone. And this shell lady is just like, well, there were positive things that came out of that. I'm like, that just means that she did it. She may not be the main villain, but I don't see any kaiju on the horizon. And if she's got drone Jaegers in the works, then that must be what is coming out of the water. They call it, God help me, spin the wheel. It lands on Obsidian Fury. That one is the only one that makes sense. It's the color Obsidian. It's a black Jaeger. And it seems pissed off. It's destroying things. But again... Did they sit around the press room? Because it's literally in a news blip. The Jaeger, which they're calling Obsidian Fury, who's calling it this? Who <laughs> came up with that name? I mean, it's not like J. Jonah Jameson, like, the Green Goblet. It's alliterative. It's going to sell headlines. It's not like J. Jonah Jameson's there. Obsidian Fury! The same people who get to name, like, hurricanes and stuff, I guess. Actually, there's a book they go to. They've pre-named them for decades. <laughs> they don't just sit around and, like, we'll call this one Katrina. Trina. No, they have a list. They go alphabetical or something. Or Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's like a small child that goes and gets the Oxford Dictionary and like points on one and then they call someone on the other side of the world and have another child point on the other and those two words <laughs> become the name. So in this room, my Jaeger is Footloose Clipper. <laughs> sure, it works. It's better than some of these in here, actually. Actually, what Obsidian Fury is going to fight is the Gypsy Avenger, which is not the same Gypsy as we had in the last film. Did it get destroyed? It blew up and they had to come up in the life raft and it was just the two of them making googly eyes at each other. So yes, that Gypsy was destroyed. This one looks identical and they're even going to do the same fist palm move that it did, but... It's completely new. I, yeah, I think it has double swords this time, and it can open its palm and do some kind of magnetism thing. That's kind of cool. It only has one sword, I'm pretty sure. It's Obsidian Fury who had two, and yet it seems like Gypsy gets it cut off twice. Hmm, that may be. Well, by the end battle, I think they upgraded to have two. Whenever they did the little montage of getting the, all the remaining Jaegers up and running. Okay, because in the big battle in Siberia, it only pulls out one, but... Right. And yes, of course, here in Australia, I thought it was a really cool visual. 
the one thing I will credit this movie for tremendously is being almost a 10,000 foot view of a Fromer's Guide. Like, you want to go to Australia, you want to go to Tokyo, you want to go to Hong Kong, you want to go to Siberia. I like the locations. I liked seeing Obsidian Fury come out of the water. Coming out of the water, I, of course, expected Godzilla to come. I was in the theater, not many people, but there was one guy that had the shirt, was a Pacific Rim fan, and when he saw the rippling in the water, he's like, ooh! And then, like, yeah, when it was a robot that came out by the Sydney Opera House, I could just watch him deflate. It was kind of funny, just watch him, like, (laughs) sink in his chair, like, yeah, it's not a kaiju. I was a little bit spoiled because of Toy Fair, There's successful toy lines based on this, too. Maybe the toys also sell better in China, but I'd seen Obsidian Fury and knew there was a bad Jaeger. In the trailers, you see Jaeger on Jaeger fighting, so I knew there was going to be a bad one. This one comes in. I thought the Opera House would get destroyed because Roland and Emmerich, if they taught us anything, taught us always destroy the landmarks, but he goes past the Sydney Opera House and does not worry about it, and then we see, of course, Gypsy comes in to fight it, But off in the distance is a helicopter. In slow-mo, we see Mako. And I'm just like, oh, she dead. She totally dead. The only reason to have her in a helicopter in 30 minutes into this movie is because the actress really didn't want to stick around all that long. Yeah, and if she's not going to have her drift partner, she's never going to get into a suit. I'll just go ahead and explain what the book says about that. If you recall, Raleigh, the co-pilot, he went all the way in. Like, she ejected out of that thing, and he went to the other side where the precursors are, briefly, and apparently that gave him cancer. So although it looked like he lived, he immediately, after they swam to the surface and hugged each other, got in a hospital bed, got lesions, and died. You know, there's a reason I didn't read this book. It's because I took a bullet and read that Independence Day interquill book where they killed Will Smith in a jet training mission. This sounds just as disrespectful. You know, it doesn't have the the same cachet because I don't think we were ever caring about these characters, even if you were a fan of that first movie. But it did feel like, okay, you're not coming back. Dead! It also makes me wonder how they're going to go to the other side in part three. You better bring uh, chemotherapy. (laughs) You think there's going to be a part three? That's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the point is the main battle for the middle of this movie is a black Jaeger that nobody knows where he came from. But before Mako crashed, she sent a map. Of where she thought it was being made? (laughs) She started to transmit a message (laughs) that they think might be a silhouette of a Jaeger head. Can you imagine? I'm choking and I'm like drawing on a napkin of like where the chicken that I ate was manufactured. I mean, that's strange. Why would she be preoccupied that in the last seconds of her life? Yeah, how does she even really know where this came from? Because it made its first appearance in Sydney. Yes, that's what I mean. She's literally in the last moments of her life looking over and a giant black robot is coming out of the ocean and she immediately thinks Siberia. And so she's going to send a photo instead (laughs) of a text. Right, don't say the word. Make it something that they don't even know what it is until they bring in Gottlieb because they need something for Gottlieb to do. Gottlieb, yes, we do get back two characters from the original, Dr. Herman Gottlieb, played by Bern Gorman, and Newt Geisler, played by Charlie Day. And their first scenes are together. Newt is now working for Shao as their lead tech, and the reunion with Herman, I think, is going to be 
a buddy-buddy again this time like they were last time. I thought they had great chemistry last time. They were a funny pair. Here, we see that Herman is needing help with some problem, and Newt is a douchebag. And I think that's going to be his character arc. Like, we start off, maybe he's on top of the world, he's gotten some money, he's gotten some fame, but then... During the movie, he's going to come back down and reconnect with his friend Herman and realize he needs to do the right thing. No, the movie's going the opposite direction. This is just a hint that this is not the same Newt we knew before. Yeah, I can honestly say I never guessed that they would make him full-on villain. I knew, remembered very distinctly that he was a Kaiju fan and that he linked with the brain. So, yeah, that opened up all sorts of possibilities about maybe he could communicate with the other side. I thought that he might be a wealth of knowledge in that respect. But the idea that he's the one behind Obsidian Fury and all of this, well, it's teased too long, but it, it is a surprise when we find out it's not his ball-busting boss. By the time they reveal it, it's too obvious, right? I mean, I wouldn't have thought it early on, but the moment you get to see him go home, because when he's reuniting with Herman, he's like, why don't you come by my place, see the wife? I'm like, oh, he got married, maybe he has kids. That's very interesting to do to a character after 10 years. You just don't see it that often in movies that you're going to come back and now this person's happily married and things. I thought that was a really cool idea. But when he goes home to the wife and she's not talking, I thought, are we going to get a domestic subplot? Is she sleeping with somebody else? Oh, wait, his wife is a kaiju brain. And here's the honest truth. I thought because I know that Guillermo del Toro did write some versions of these early drafts, I just thought that was him being Guillermo. I mean, the idea that we're going to now have Kaiju piloting the Jaegers feels like her a one contribution from Guillermo here that he must, this must be his idea when they rip open the head of Obsidian and they see that little Kaiju brain and the idea that Charlie Day's character is going to literally be in a romantic relationship with a brain in a jar. That just feels like something that he would explore and find goofy. After all, what was Shape of Water but a woman falling in love with a fish monster and we like the fish monster and don't like the human she works for so i think that it's possible in guillermo del toro's world that we could have a believable romance between this newton character and the kaiju brain but it's not he's under their evil influence that's what we'll find out (laughs) though admittedly i am very intrigued now it wouldn't have been satisfying to the overall movie if the only thing that the uh, Jaegers had to fight were kaiju-controlled Jaegers, but I like the concept of inserting the kaiju into the Jaeger and creating this hybrid type of creature that is a mech kaiju. I mean, it's Mechagodzilla, right? I I liked where that was going. Yeah, me too. That was kind of a neat part two thing to do, but if you're really into this because it's a Godzilla movie, then you'd miss out on that. But fortunately, I guess we get both. Eventually. At no time soon, again, what we get is because this is sometimes a teen movie, we get Amara snooping around the ruins of Obsidian, and only she knows how Shao Industry wires... Something or rather. <laughs> and so she can say that this thing was made by Shao Industries. Again, we're always concluding it's this evil Chinese woman that never smiles and is always lecturing the lovable Charlie Day. How could it be Charlie Day that's bad? That's building up to the twist. When we finally get it, we have all her drones about to be launched. 
And then all of a sudden they're just spitting out blue goo and destroying the very places that they came from. And they seem to forget that in the first movie that blue goo was exceptionally toxic and <laughs> causing horrible diseases and you had to evacuate areas where that blue blood was spilled. Yeah, they tighten that. Yeah, they neaten that up. So much about this movie feels less perverse and less weird. That may have been Guillermo del Toro being commercial, but it still had touches that I think only someone like Guillermo del Toro would try. Uh, Michael Bay would never do. And here, I definitely feel like his aesthetic is, for the most part, cleaned up whenever they could to make it less icky. We like the robots. We like the tech. We want the Transformers feel. We don't want the feel of Shape of Water. So these drones who have been co-opted by Seeker Kaiju Brains are now just going to take their lasers and just shoot the floor of the Pacific Rim to open the breach. That's what they're doing. And they're doing it in different places. It looks like there's three groups of five. So they didn't go back to the original opening. Or if they did, they also went to other places because they're going to open it in a weird triangular pattern, all equidistant from different directions from Mount Fuji. Yeah, something got lost in translation. Maybe in the Chinese cut it makes sense. <laughs> this might be the first time where, like, we're the ones that didn't get the language translation. But I don't understand how this works. Looking at one of the maps at that part of the movie where when they all closed, it seemed like they were just all over coastal regions of, of Asia, not just in a small little area around Japan. Maybe that's where the ones got out. They didn't close in time, but it seemed like they're opening them all over the Pacific Ocean. And might I say, the kaiju drones, though, are the single best visual of this movie in my mind. I don't understand how when a kaiju brain takes over, it's going to alter the appearance of the drones and give them <laughs> these glowy blue things. I don't need to understand that. It looks awesome. I love those things and I wished they were the final villain. I really had hoped that would be it. The part of me was hoping that what the twist and trick of this one was is that the remaining kaiju that Newton could clone and duplicate and whatever finds new bodies in the machines and can control them. Golly, I can't believe I'm going to say this in a monster truck sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to get more personal, if you were. If they're going to become more like our robots, if we could start to understand them more, I don't know if talking is the right thing, but if we could just get more information about them. Because all we know is that there's this other side where these other things live. I just, I feel like this is a an element of the mythology they could really elaborate on and draw me in. And although it looks cool, I don't feel like I understand what they think, what they're doing. More importantly, they die like bitches. There's no good fight. Instead of being these wonderful attackers that they start off being, as soon as they do a little bit of attacking before they can even Jaeger up. I'm like, oh my God, they're not in their Jaegers. These drones are monstrous. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be so much destruction. Wait, they're just going to go underwater. And it almost looks like a holy thing. Like they're standing in a circle and there's a star pattern of lasers. And then they're just cut off at the source and they all just die. They don't even get good fights. I'll just go ahead and spoil it because this is literally, it's, it's rare, but sometimes you actually see a shot that it goes from Green Arrow to Red Arrow. <laughs> and this is the shot of like this awesome, finally a kaiju horn monster coming out of the water. I'm like, yes! And then like they turn off the mechs 
and they their lasers just like cut it into pieces and it just falls dead and you realize there's no monster they're like oh yeah three got out i'm like wait three <laughs> and not that cool one i'm like oh you can just feel it deflate right at this point the ambitions like this was going to be bigger than the first movie, and then it was like, no, the door opened for a little bit, and three got out, and then we closed it again. Wah, wah, wah. That's just lame. That just tells us they didn't have the money, or they did something in rewriting, that whatever their ambitions were, this movie got really small now, that it's three kaiju trying to get to Mount Fuji. But then they paint themselves into a corner because I'm thinking, wow, if they opened up all these portals and hundreds of them get out, they only have three or four mechs left. Yeah, well, that would be exciting, wouldn't it? That would be a really good movie. <laughs> Except I'm sitting here thinking, well, there's no way that's going to work. There's no way three or four of them are going to defeat hundreds of them in a way that I'm going to think that it's the believable ending of this movie with all the super cadet kids. Well, yes, you're right. They don't have the team that I can believe in to fight them. That They have to go to trainees that aren't even rangers yet already i'm just like really nobody else that was cool that already had their license could pilot and i at times i squinted and i got a little bit of a starship troopers vibe off of this but it wasn't subversive at the end of starship troopers you see them bringing out the teenagers because all the adults have been killed and we need soldiers and so we're just sending these troops off into war like the nazis did in world war ii so i thought Maybe this is going to be something subversive. Maybe there's a commentary. No, it's just teen power raw. It's space camp. It's Red Dawn. It's every movie from the 80s where the teens can do it better than the adults. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I got a little Wing Commander feel from this team, too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be talking about that soon enough. Yeah, that's in our video game retrospective. Anyway, my point is... Aliens was so much more exciting because we knew how badass one alien was. And then to think that the place was overrun with it and there's no way we could fight it would be amazing. That would be a climax that would just, how are they going to do it? That it's now a bunch of kids and some broke down robots trying to get three of them before they climb into a volcano. That is not a movie. That is like Pacific Rim, the TV show. That's not a plot worth our time. And I don't know who these kids are. I've been trying to keep track. I know there's one that is flirting with our main girl. And there's Victoria who's fighting with our main girl, giving us the only hand-to-hand fight we really get in this thing. But I don't know who any of them are. So when they start lining up and then get into Jaegers that I don't know who they are. I mean, one of them looks like Baymax went to Weight Watchers and trimmed up. But other than that, I don't know... What is going on? And I could not tell you for the life of me who was in which Jaeger. Not only that, but you can go to Pacific Rim Wiki and they can't tell you either. That is what's astounding. All right. I counted it out. I read the book. I know for a fact that there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight kids. And then Amara joins and there are five different Jaegers. That they're all, you know, drifting in. And in this climax, there are four. And when I look at pictures on the wiki, sometimes the one that Victoria is in is called Titan Redeemer. And sometimes it's called Bracer Phoenix. So (laughs) they don't even know. I'm just going to point it out. We get lost in translation. You go to China, you speak Mandarin, you really get this movie. You don't, if you're like us, you have no clue. 
And yeah, two of the characters just disappear. Renata and Ryochi, who is a big star, by the way, the son of Sonny Chiba. I'm not going to try to say his name, but he was a major character. I think I saw him walk across the screen once. There is another cut of this movie where the Asian characters probably have much bigger roles and Amara has a much smaller role or this just a longer movie like the last time. And there are storylines where we know these kids. Because obviously, we should know these kids. They're our heroes. They're the ones that are going to do it. Kind of. I mean, most of them fall. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> is none of them make it to the end. Well, yes. In the end, it's about Amara and Jake getting together and doing it. Because they were at the beginning and they've simplified it that they were the two outsiders. It makes sense that they would be the ones when no one else could do it. I mean, we don't want to see Scott Eastwood do it. That would piss me off. <laughs> I thought it was a big thing, though. I thought maybe it would end up being Amara and Vic with Jake and Nate. And so these two rivals, the four characters I could actually pick out from this, put aside their differences, drift together, become friends, share all their memories, and become heroes together. But no, both Victoria and Nate are going to fall out. I did like this fight, though. Here's the plus and the minus of this end fight. We finally got kaiju. Yes, huge plus. And they don't look as cool as the kaiju from movie one, though. I'm just, the overall aesthetic, they felt a little bit more ruddy. They felt like plastic or clay instead of flesh to me. Just the tone and the way their mouths opened. I just, they didn't feel as subversive as the last film. Not only that, but we have four Jaegers against three Kaiju. All right. These are not stakes. But one's a class five. I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but seeing these Jaegers fight is actually pretty cool. And it's weird because after the movie, I ran into you, Stuart, and you said what was in my mind. At a couple of points, they strike these poses, and I'm like, I've seen these poses. They're posing like Power Rangers in a fight. Yes. <laughs> I thought they moved too smoothly. I thought that they didn't move like robots. The first film, I got a sense of scale because they were lumbering, and when they punched, you felt the punch it felt like an entire semi truck was coming at you and they were picking up boats and hitting each other and here i realized i did not have that sense of scale and they were moving some of them were downright lithe mm. and i understand 10 years of advancement but it looked cool and yet it robbed pacific rim of something that i really liked about it at the same time you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Saber Phoenix, the orange one, is just better martial artist than Jet Li. And that should not be if you're a 300-foot-tall machine. And that's the one who I said was like Baymax on a diet. It even had the fins in the back and was like Baymax colored. Mm. <laughs> but there's one thing that I did find cool. Newt is watching this fight from a bridge. And one of the kaiju comes face to face with him and just stares at him and breathes at him. And I thought for sure that the kaiju was going to eat him or something, you know, because it is a human. But no, they know this is their leader. And when he sees that the kaiju are losing, he sends in these clipper bots. And I'm like, Jerry, you might get this. They reminded me of Mousers from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and they're coming in and they're swarming and destroying. I'm like, oh, how do you fight these? But what they do, they go around the Jaegers, and the movie has me. I'm like, I don't understand. They're going after the kaiju? Why wouldn't you do that? 
And then, of course, it becomes a mega kaiju. It's like the Constructicons. It rips apart the three kaiju and turns them into... It's literally on Newt's iPad. It says mega kaiju. (laughs) I saw that. That was a little much. But no, that was a Transformers moment. That was your typical combiners. You know, the the three of them weren't powerful enough. They combine. But what I thought was funny about that scene, because it was kind of what I was thinking a little bit too, was Newton says... Oh, wow. Giant robots again. Well, you guys have no creativity. And it actually reminded me of that bit from Hellboy 2 when you had, I don't know what those little creatures were, but you remember those tiny little white creatures? Oh, yeah. The tooth fairy monsters. They eat your teeth. Yes, thank you. That's kind of what that reminded me of is, wait a minute, is Newton going to actually create something that's going to destroy the kaiju as a way of showing his... No, I'm way overthinking. They're just building him into a megazord. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a good idea. I mean, if you think about it, he's a scientist, he's a geneticist. He could go in there and reshape these things any way that he wanted to. Yeah, if we saw that, again, if this were a movie that wasn't afraid of its own ickiness, if it embraced the biomechanical aesthetic, yeah, watching machines and flesh and monster skin all form together, you could have some really interesting creative ideas. But again, they're trying to sell toys and they're trying to sell toys to people that like Transformers. So no gross toys. There are huge amounts of Godzilla toys out there. They could be making toys to sell to those people, too. Well, you do know Legendary Pictures owns Godzilla, and there are some discussions about bringing these mechs into that. I doubt it. Or maybe in the Chinese cut. (laughs) But I was confused. I had to ask you in that parking lot, Arnie, like, why do they want Mount Fuji so much? Why that one out of all the volcanoes in the Ring of Fire? You know, the entire Pacific Ocean is filled with volcanoes. And we're meant to believe that they only needed one volcano and could never find it through all of the 10 years of battle. They could never find Mount Fuji of all places. They could never get there before they were killed. They were always drawn to it. They were just always taking the wrong roads, I guess. And they don't want to destroy the cities. The cities are just in the way, on their way to Mount Fuji, which is like, no, that's midichlorian bad. Especially if they're coming out of the Pacific, then why are they going to California? (laughs) (laughs) They're really lost. Some of them just do not have a sense of direction. They clearly didn't build GPSs into those kaiju when Newton was uh, fiddling with them. That's why he's got to be there with a laptop, I guess, or a tablet. Yeah, iPad controlled. (laughs) It just feels small that it's one monster trying to get a drink of lava that's it he's not trying to drink he's going to dive into it it's it's like the end of alien 3 if he dives in it's going to kill him but it's also going to kill us right because that will cause all the volcanoes to explode or just this one or whatever doesn't matter nuclear winter yeah the science is is shaky in this entire saga but yes they have to stop the monster from falling into the volcano is a lame, I want destruction, which we're getting peripherally, but it feels like the robots are doing more of it, that it just wants to go up to a volcano is just small potatoes. And their solution for it is to weld a rocket onto his fist. It's a rocket that they had on their back, and yes, Scrapper has to come in with the rocket. I knew Scrapper would come back. I mean, it was just too unique a design to be left on the sides. We've seen him in the background a couple of times at the training academy. And yet Amara's not in it, it's worth pointing out, that it's it's been retrofitted with drone technology, and she's actually hanging out with other people who are 
not needing her. And she's not a good drift pilot. It's, it should be pointed out. We've seen her in simulations failing time and again. She just keeps thinking about her family dying at the Santa Monica Pier. So she really, she's a great welder, a great designer. She really should not be getting into these Jaegers at the end. And didn't it freak you out that there was a test brain named Sarah that everybody drifted with? There's this brain in a jar. I'm telling you, that was a Del Toro touch. That was like the one time he was like, you should do this. But yeah, they have to cram her in here. And so they have this plan that they're going to go all the way up into outer space and then come down hard on the beast and then jump out at the right time. But for whatever plot mechanics that aren't working, they can't do it without Scrapper coming in and saving them. They need the rocket to get to the atmosphere. Yeah, but then they couldn't escape. Like the escape hatch didn't work. And Scott Eastwood had to take one of them already because he got hurt somehow. That was actually kind of cool when the kaiju punched through the cockpit and it went between the two. But when it came out, it had injured Nate. He wasn't that injured because he then goes around and climbs a skyscraper on his own to go ahead and get Charlie Day. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which seems like a long walk, but... At any rate, we can all agree, a missile coming down on a mountain is a underwhelming conclusion to what should have been a robot rocket sockum monster battle. It was lackluster. It was not what I wanted, and I was really feeling the length of this movie, which, as you have pointed out, is shorter than the last. By 30 minutes. I mean, considerably shorter. And I can tell what they cut. There are things about this plot that do not make sense that are probably on an editing room floor, but I think it's the right impulse. I'm glad that it did not give us 20 more minutes of the kids at the academy. I mean, that would have just bored me more. Well, how much were you bored? Jerry, Stuart, do you recommend Pacific Rim Uprising? Jerry. You know, admittedly, I had to give this a lot of thought, and and I'll be upfront. Whatever I'm about to say is going to be very mild. Because, you know, this movie's okay. It's fine. I did enjoy the action scenes. I'm glad we got some action early in the movie. I like some aspects of the plots and things that are different in this one with the kaiju being integrated with the, the Jaegers there in a couple scenes. And, you know, sort of the, there's four of us and three kaiju. Let's go get them. But, you know... Stuart, I think what you just said about let's just take a heavy mech and drop it out of the sky into the last kaiju and that's how we're going to beat it. That falls flat. And I think that's where I'm going to end on this movie. I'm going to give this a mild not recommend because it's just so oh-hum. I know there's a lot of different ways you can think about recommending a movie. I mean, being that it's in theater, being that it's, hey, should you go rent it? And I know we don't really break that apart, but it's one of those things, you know, I saw it on an IMAX 2D. I'm kind of glad I saw it on the, the big scale to everything felt huge on the IMAX, even though it wasn't 3D. Obviously, the, the screen was huge. And I think it was a, a good way to view it, but honestly, there's no way I would have seen this movie without this review. And even after seeing it, I, I'm not thinking to myself, man, I'm really glad I saw that movie. I'm thinking. And uh, this felt so Disney Channel original movie to me, only like Monster Truck with a good budget. The effects look good. You know, I thought folks like John Boyega did a good job with their roles, but there's just, there's nothing memorable about this movie. There's nothing that's going to excite you. It just hits flat. So I'll give it a mild not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, this franchise stuff like pacific rim it's always going to be second level right because you don't have to be a science fiction fan to love star wars or like violence to enjoy the godfather i mean there are other dimensions that are go beyond genre 
and wide varieties of audiences can appreciate them. But if you don't care about giant robots fighting giant lizards and breaking stuff, Pacific Rim has nothing for you. It really, there's nothing else there at all. And while I do have a childhood affinity for that kind of stuff that goes back to me watching the old Godzilla movies as a kid, I had trouble even with that first one recommending the entire film. Hong Kong is great. See that sequence. But as a sustained two-hour movie, it just didn't work for me. And everything about Uprising is lesser than that first Pacific Rim. Less kaiju, less star power, less interesting scenarios. It is, as I've already revealed, a not recommend. My question was, not was it going to be good or better than the last one that I didn't recommend. My question was, since it did, as Arnie revealed, look so much like that Power Rangers reboot that they had last year... Is it better than that? I actually, right after I left the theater, I'm like, I'm going to go watch that, Arnie, and I'm going to tell you tomorrow what is better, Power Rangers or Uprising. I've been on the edge of my seat because that Power Rangers reboot actually didn't look so bad. Yeah, I'm going to fare on the side of Power Rangers. I do think, for one thing, for sure, one thing that it just creams Uprising with is the fact that the story is about the cadets, the kids. You know every single person involved and why they're there and they have a camaraderie. And that's important to any story, right? Knowing the characters matters. It's nice to have a budget and destruction, but you need to know who your characters are. That's definitely uh, better characters and Power Rangers. You know, there's less giant battles. There is a big thing at the end that they fight. Most of it is a little bit more earthbound, a lot more flying and interpersonal stuff. But uh, yeah, I would say overall, for sure, I can give a more hearty endorsement for Power Rangers than I can for Uprising if you're really needing some regressive kitty action this weekend. it's This one's not it. There's better things out there. Two weeks, two weekend of release movies, both that look a lot like video games. And two times I'm sitting in the theater like, meh, it's okay-ish. And yet with Tomb Raider... When I watched Tomb Raider the entire time, I'm like, yeah, it's not memorable and it's not spectacular, but I never thought I would red arrow it. And after about 30 minutes into Pacific Rim, I'm like, it's not terrible. It's not spectacular, but I never thought I would green arrow it. Once I realized that there were too many characters and everything, and then it really made me sit down and say, so why is this a not recommended Tomb Raider or recommend? When in both cases, I don't have a strong reaction. What is it that instinctively told me this is red and that is green? And the answer was a few key things that I'd written down as emotional reactions in my notes when they happened. One is when we get there and I realize there's way too many kids and they don't focus on a couple of them. They don't give us... Like in Harry Potter, we never have our Harry, Hermione, and Ron, and then the others, you know? I'm sure our listeners could probably name all of the others. Several of our listeners could. But here, they're all the others to me. I never even really got Amara's name when I was watching it, because it sounds like they're slurring something. Amara. I'm like, what did, what did they say? I couldn't even write it down. I had to wait and get home. The second thing is, John Boyega does nothing to inspire me as a hero. You mentioned that Amara is the one who has an arc. Yeah, what 
is Jake's thing here. He starts off just enjoying a pool party. We never ever find out why he left the Jaeger Corps. I, well, no, it, it said his dad let him go because he tried to pilot a mech on his own. Yeah. I mean, is that a fireball offense? Maybe he just got tired of Oreos and Sriracha. Yeah, I mean, he had 10 years to come back. Apparently, his sister's been trying to get him back, had to blackmail him back. And then he finally is happy to be there. That's not a character arc. There's no reasoning for it. And the third thing was, sadly, when everything went down the way it did at the end, it was so telegraphed, I had eye strain. My eyes were rolling so hard. By the time the plot twists come around, it's way too telegraphed. The shock was lost when I saw Charlie mind-melding with that brain. I love the scene. It is a Guillermo scene to see a guy. It's almost a Cronenberg scene to see him jack in with the bio new flesh. But it just left me cold. And if you can't see the twists in this movie coming as far away as you could see a Jaeger coming, then you're not paying attention. And even the score in this one didn't do a whole lot for me. I realized it near the end when they brought in some of that great theme from the first one. I realized exactly how unexciting the music up until then had been. I love that original Pacific Rim score. I listened to it regularly just at work as some background music to get me really kind of pumped and, you know, get work done mood. And this one... Like the movie itself, it's, it's disappointing. It's a weaker, not recommend, but it's definitely on the side of Red Arrow this time. I'm sad about that because, again, I was the one who did recommend the first one. I was hoping I'd be the one to recommend this one. I went in hoping for more Jaeger versus Kaiju fun, but it was Kaiju little too late. Well, could you forgive a part three that takes place on Kaiju home turf? Oh, you know what I'm waiting for? I'm so excited for the double feature of Independence Day 3 where we go to the alien world, followed by <laughs> Pacific Rim 3 where we go to the Kaiju world. You mean they're not going to pull it off? Maybe it's the same world. <laughs> they might pull it off. But it'll be in Mandarin. You know what? It will be made entirely for the Chinese audience, and they will not even bother putting it out here. The movie is expected to dethrone Black Panther as number one at the box office. By whom? Who is expecting that? All of the analysts who are saying Pacific Rim is going to come in at 22 to 25 million, and Black Panther's probably going to sit around 17, 16. Yeah, just to clarify, no one's expecting it to do nearly the box office of Black Panther, but because Black Panther has been out so long, it's finally not making enough not to be number one, is what you're saying. I'm still not totally convinced. I'll, be I'll believe what I see. It. <laughs> It'll be plus or minus a half a million. You're like, I think anything could beat this. Red Sparrow could beat this. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Here's the thing. is, It's no longer about box office. For me, it's about desire. Remember how excited I was for Independence Day 2 and how I walked out just so disgusted? Yeah. Here, I'm not so disgusted, but I also was never as high on Pacific Rim 1 as I was on Independence Day 1. Now... They've taken this one-off movie that I really enjoyed the flavor of and the fun of, and I'm still going to enjoy part one, but they've cheapened it. And this movie is like a Jaeger where they took out the soul of the people and put in something synthetic to run it. And so I just don't want to see the zombie franchise shamble onto the shores again. I 
no America won't support it. It's expected to really explode in China, though. So I do think everything you're joking about, Stuart, <laughs> is the truth. Yeah, I'm going to brush up on my Mandarin. I mean, Charlie Day's told me it isn't good enough. I know when this comes out. They might not even bother to subtitle it in English. They're like, no, only Chinese people will see this. But yeah, I, I think when Guillermo walked away, that was also any interest and in hope walked away with me. I'd be interested in doing a retrospective of his work or see what he does next, particularly now that he has Oscars and can command big budgets again. I think that that could be something worth following. But Pacific Rim feels done and uh, happy to move on. I also think that Guillermo was a driving force behind this movie getting made. I think what you've got to realize is he was working on the scripts. He was going to direct. What happened was timing was bad. When the studio said, okay, here's the check, Guillermo's like, but I have a passion project over here. I'm going to go, I have to follow my passion. So I'm going to go do The Shape of Water. Great choice for him. And then somebody else came in, but now... I don't see Guillermo having the passion anymore. I don't see him. It's the same thing with Hellboy. He really wanted to do a Hellboy 3, but that could never happen for all these various contractual reasons and things too. And so he moved on. I think he'll move on from this. And without somebody of Guillermo del Toro's stature and reputation to drive it, it's like you said with Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider 2 could happen but will the people involved want to do it? If they want to do it, if they're like, I want to get back on that horse, it'll happen. Here, if Guillermo is like, Pacific Rim is going to be the thing I keep an eye on while I go work over here. If it is, you know, like Spielberg producing, Guillermo producing Pacific Rim, they'll keep doing it. But I think Guillermo is going to move on. He's got his statue. He can do any passion project he wants now. And that means... The door to the kaiju is closed forever unless, legitimately, they decide to cross over with Godzilla. That's where we'll see him again. Could happen. But let's move on. I mean, I think there's plenty of other things to see in theaters this year, uh, starting with Ready Player One. That will be the movie. It kind of takes us back to video games. It's not quite based on a video game, but it certainly takes inspiration from 80s video games and just about everything 80s. Steven Spielberg directs, and it should be a big film. And then, Jerry, you're going to be back because Transformers are coming back this year. Yeah. By Christmas, I do believe, although release dates are subject to change, John Cena is going to get in Bumblebee? Hey, John Cena apparently was interviewed late this week saying that this movie was going to bring back the Transformer fans. So if 16-time WWE heavyweight champion John Cena says it, I'm in. All right. We'll see. I mean, there's room for improvement. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) It'll be better than last night. I feel confident. I would agree wholeheartedly. And Jerry, it's great to have you back on. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It's a great way to get the word out. And plus, if you leave a few words with that five-star review, we always like to see what you guys are thinking of our show. It would really help us out. There's a link to our iTunes feed from our homepage. So we'll be back next week with Ready Player One. And until then, where's my damn shoe? Enough. I've seen what I need to see. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. 2,500 tons of awesome. 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. That's what I'm talking about! And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, Independence Day, The Avengers films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. The theater of this. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Cadets, you better gear up. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. I do not need your sympathy or your admiration. All I need is your compliance. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. One of our brightest. Also in charge of the Mark III restoration program. Now Playing Specific Rim Retrospective is edited by Heath and Arnie. We only got one shot of this. Then let's make it count. Now playing credits read by Brock. Do I make myself clear? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You are in violation of Code 10, Section 14, operation of an unregistered Jaeger. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. You have no idea who the hell I am or where I've come from, and I'm not about to tell you my whole life story. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Listen, we have to warn them. The Jaegers. The breach. The plan. It's not going to work. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Today, at the edge of our hope, at the end of our time, we have chosen not only to believe in ourselves, in each other. Today there's not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. There's something that happens to a project when it gets inherited to younger hands that, you know, I just think of the fly too. It's just like, hmm, this is going to be lesser. It doesn't have to be, though. I can definitely think of some teen movies. Admittedly, none are coming to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Where the kids made it better? God damn it, I'm going to have to think of one.
However, Jake's stepsister, Mako Mori, hero of the Kaiju War, is now the PDC... Is now the PP... You said PP. <laughs> Nate disapproves of Jake's life and they spar over that, as well as over comely tech Jules Reyes, played by Adria Arjona. <laughs> this is just about the way you're going to pronounce the name. <laughs> Can't wait to see the post and emails. We know. We didn't say any of them right. None. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Arjona is correct. Good for you. And I actually did look up that girl's last name. Uh, Armani? Spainy. Okay. Spainy. It's yeah. kind of unfortunate. But it's like the country and then E. We'll never see her again. She's a pop star, apparently. She has one iTunes single. Actually, I think some pretty interesting things up front. He knows enough about the kaiju to go steal the parts and the Jaegers. What I say, kaiju? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, he knows enough about the kaiju to know what Jaegers. No. Did I do a t- <laughs> <clears throat> take three? She and her drift partner, who uh, Jin Hai, is that how you say it? Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's Scott Eastwood. I never call him out or pick him out while I'm watching the movie. It's always later. He's the least interesting one on screen. Remember Suicide Squad? He was the one in the background that never did anything cool. <laughs> Who was he in Suicide Squad? <laughs> he was like the white dude. It was like the cool Suicide Squad and then like the white dude walking around. <laughs> well, no, there was the white dude who was in love with Enchantress. No, no not that white dude. There was another one. <laughs> there was. <laughs> you know the white dude exactly and then in fast and the furious i think he's the white dude behind kurt russell yes yes yeah we, we need even extra white dude scott will do it <laughs> he's the one that gets thrown around by the rock <laughs> To think of her as Miss Utani from Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> that was Stuart for a change. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this. I got a little Wing Commander feel from this team, too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking about that soon enough. Yeah, that's in our video game retrospective. I was one of the uh, Phantom Menace trailer viewers of that movie, so... Did you mm. walk out after the trailer or stay for the film? Oh, no. My story's funny. I went there for the trailer, and they didn't play it. Oh! <laughs> that's a double bind. Yeah. So did you walk out or stay for the film? <laughs> well, no, because there was a little rumor that they're playing the trailer after the movie, so people don't walk out. I didn't get oh. up for or after, and then I just saw a crappy movie. That is a sad story. Well, yes. In the end, it's about Amara and... Is Jake. it Jake or Nate? Jake. I know. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah. 